This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash myangularstory. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Angular Story. This week, we're talking to Mike Ryan. Mike, do you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. Now, we had you on episode 137 of Adventures in Angular. We talked about NGRX. Does that sound about right? That's correct. Yeah, about a year ago as we record this. So, yeah. And uh, I'm also curious, this may come out before NGConf. Are you coming out here for NGConf? Not only am I coming out there for NGConf, I've got three talks at NGConf this year, all about NGRX. Awesome. We'll put you to work then. All right. Well, it's interesting to talk to these folks that, you know, like you, that work on things that a lot of people are using across the industry. Um, But before we get into that, do you want to just give a brief introduction as far as, you know, what you do for work and, you know, why you're famous and all that good stuff? (laughs) Sure. So I am a software engineer at a company called Synapse in Huntsville, Alabama. And we're focusing on building industrial Internet of Things for big manufacturing plants in the United States. That's cool. And at Synapse, yeah, it's very cool work. I work as a tech lead here, so I make technical decisions around the way we build user interfaces Mm -hmm. for the industrial IoT. That's really cool. Now I want to talk about that, but that's not what we're here for. (laughs) So so let's, let's dive in and talk about how you got into programming. I like kind of getting back to that story. It it seems like a lot of folks have an interesting and somewhat unique take on that. But the other thing is, is a lot of our listeners are new people and it's nice for them to see, oh, Mike does, you know, works on NGRX and he must be a genius. And then they find out that you came into the industry like everybody else and that they can contribute like you do. Yeah. And, and my story is a little weird, but I think also maybe kind of typical too, as mm-hmm. most of these stories are. So when I was a young man in the early 2000s, I grew up on the Alabama Gulf Coast, and we were really prone to hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And uh, one year, I forget the name of the storm, but we were under threat of a pretty severe hurricane, and we had to flee our homes. And we ended up staying with an estranged great uncle in Birmingham, Alabama. This is the (laughs) only time I've ever met him. Uh, I haven't really talked to him since then, though um, I would certainly like to thank him today. But uh, he was a librarian for the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And he sort of saw that I had an interest in technology, but I didn't really have the resources to get into it. And after the storm passed, he sent me on my way home with the parts to build my first computer. And uh, that was sort of like the last time I ever talked to him. But it was going home trying to build this machine that really kicked off my interest in programming and problem solving with technology. That's awesome. I, I relate to that a little bit. My, my grandfather was sort of a mentor in that way to me. Um, and my dad bought a computer when I was really young. But, you know, it's it, it's really interesting just to see, you know what, um, there's an interest and then there's some catalyst that kicks it off. 
So, so what did you do with right. it once you got that computer built? I mean, what, what kinds of things were you doing with it from there? Um, so I had no idea how to build it and it took me probably about two months to actually get it to boot. I remember having mm-hmm. to sort of, um, rely on, there was a Linux user group and mobile and my mother worked as a barista at a coffee shop. So she just happened to know some people from this <laughs> nice. Linux user group. So as I needed parts, she was able to connect me with people that she knew from the coffee shop to help get me pieces for this machine. Uh, the great uncle sent me on my way with a Windows 98 upgrade disk, which was not enough to actually install Windows 98 mm-hmm. on the machine when it was up and running. So I remember the, uh, the local Linux group got me a Vector Linux distro disk. Nice. I know Vector Linux is still a distro to this day, but yeah, so it was, it was kind of like a, it was a multi-month process to get this thing up and running and to really reach out to the community around me to help learn how to put the thing together and get it running and once I did, I sort of took off from there. Nice. So you start building projects on the machine and learning Linux? Yes. Learning Linux. And I was also donated a intro to basic programming book. Mm. like sort of how to build interactive games in a terminal with basic. And I started writing these interactive programs for Linux and learning different Linux distributions and just really having fun with it in my free time. Cool. So how do you get from there to working in Angular or working in JavaScript? Uh, many years from that point, when I'm trying to get my way through college, I at that point had sort of an understanding of web technologies. And I remember thinking, I've got to pay for school somehow. Mm-hmm. So the way I decided to try and pay for it is I started building these websites for family, friends, or business owners. And I was doing it for pennies, basically enough to pay for food and rent at the dorm. And that actually was enough to grow into something of a, of a freelancing gig Mm post-graduation. Um, and I was focusing mostly on like HTML, CSS, jQuery. And I eventually ended up on a contract, uh, that was using AngularJS version 1.1. The project's already mostly underway in development when I jumped on it, so I had to quickly learn AngularJS version one, and that light bulb sort of went off for me. Of, oh, this is how you build mm-hmm. web apps, or the kinds of web apps that I was really interested in at the time, which was these really interactive, uh, user-facing applications that can run you know, pretty much anywhere, on a phone, on a desktop, on a laptop, on the go. And it was, it was kind of like a deep love at first sight of this is how to build apps going forward. That's really cool. Now, uh, do you want to characterize the app a little bit and tell us a little bit about why Angular appealed to you that way? The app was a social networking app, basically, where you would have a network of friends and you could you could share content with each other in this group of friends. And so there was a real-time component to it, mm-hmm. which is... You know, if a friend did something else and you were in the app, you would get a live notification that something something had happened. And so what, what appealed to me about AngularJS is it gave me the framework to build this kind of real-time experience, which before then, you know, building static websites and applications with traditional back-end technologies, I didn't really know how to do or have a conceptual model on how to build an application like that. So that's what really 
took hold in me was this is how you can build these interactive applications that I just didn't have the skill set to build before then. Very cool. So, so how did you get into doing NGRX then? So after three years of doing the freelancing, I finally got my first job as a software engineer at a place called Army Game Studio, which is the United States Army's video game studio based in Huntsville, Alabama. That sounds and, cool. And uh, it's a little atypical, but basically the Army builds educational experiences for, for children, for teenagers, even for adults. And these educational experiences tend to be video games. Mm-hmm. And so it's things like you might have heard of America's Army, which is a first-person shooter in the vein of Call of Duty that tries to teach you, like, in a real combat environment, this is maybe how you would triage medical conditions, or this is what real tactics looks like. So that's sort of like the the main game that they're most known for. But then they'll have games like Elements, where you're learning about the periodic table and how different elements can work together to form different compounds. And so there's a wide variety of projects at Army Game Studio, and some of them were for desktop, some of them were for web, some of them were for mobile. And I was part of the web team. So we would get these sort of short-lived projects, really interactive, and we'd have to build them for the web. And AngularJS was a great fit for a lot of them. That's awesome. Now we now we have to talk about building games in Angular sometime. Definitely. I have built my fair share of games using AngularJS and even Angular. But the, the core thing that was similar between the contracting and Army Game Studio was, again, these are really interactive applications, usually uh-huh. with some live feedback to them. And uh, as I sort of started to grow my engineering skill set at Army Game Studio, some of the common ways we were building AngularJS apps back then with a service-oriented approach really were difficult for building these live applications like at scale if you want them to, to be performant and if you want to write high-quality tests for them, we ran into a lot of issues fairly frequently. And so we were looking at building projects with Angular. We sort of said at the same time, we need to think of a different architectural strategy for building these kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. And we built a couple of projects in a language called Elm, which is a functional reactive language. And at the, at the core of Elm was this notion of state management. Mm-hmm. And we saw the same patterns that we're seeing in Elm in the React space with a library called Redux. And we're like, okay, we, we know what state is, states, all these things that are giving us troubles, which is <laughs> things are updating live in this application and anyone can update them. And mm-hmm. how do we make sense of it? And how do we test this? And how do our components react to these state changes? And what Redux was doing and what Elm was doing was really appealing because they had a solution to this problem and it was being built at the size and scale of software at Facebook and at Google. We said, okay, we know that we're nowhere close to that size, so it'll probably work for the size that we're at currently. And it has a really good uh, strategy for dealing with these kind of stateful applications. So we built Redux for Angular which eventually turned into NGRX. Mm -hmm. And it was our attempt to take what was so fantastic about Redux and Elm and build out a development story for it in Angular using the Angular framework and RxJS. That's cool. Uh, What what, um, challenges did you run into as you were building it? 
because it, it it it's not a trivial problem to solve. It is not a trivial problem to solve, and we were trying to solve this back before Angular had actually been released. We were sort of pigging off of milestones, trying to get our um, toes in the water of this massive change to Angular oh, before wow. it came out. So you were you so were just was, working on a new idea in Angular, but you were working against a moving target. Definitely, like this was. We were working on NGRX months before like NG modules were even available in the mm-hmm. framework. So the problems that we were facing back then was, man, how do we do dependency injection in this framework with like <laughs> lazy loaded components? Like we were, we were working with really hard problems back then. But it was great because we got involved with Rob Wormald really early on into the genesis of this project. And he works as a developer advocate for the Angular team. Mm-hmm. So as we were running into these problems, we had a really great way to have a dialogue with the Angular core team and say, hey, we're running into this and we're actually trying to build applications in this way. And so things like ng modules happened in part because of work we were doing in NGRX. Um, and so, yeah, it was an exciting time, the genesis of NGRX, because we got to have a lot of, a lot of that conversation and impact, hopefully. That's really great. And I love the idea that, you know, the the work that you're doing on something like NGRX, which I know a lot of people use, is something that, that bled into Angular and made it easier for other people to extend it and work with it and do things with it that go beyond just, um, you know, building single page apps or, you know, this or that or the other. You know, as you get more complicated things going on, you know, those modules come in really handy for you know, breaking up your functionality and, and understanding your code and things like that. Absolutely. And we were just tremendously grateful that, you know, we were we were just some guys from Huntsville, Alabama, and we, we were incredibly grateful of the Angular core team giving us the time to, to hear what we had to say, basically. And it really reinforced the idea for us that we can contribute or we can discuss. We shouldn't be afraid of how big we are or where we live or mm-hmm. what projects we're working on. We have valuable things to say about the experiences we're having building with these tools. And the people building these tools are eager to hear it and to respond to it and to make improvements for you. So it's a really fun time. I love that idea. And I love the idea of democratizing work on the ecosystem we live in. I mean, you're not exactly in Silicon Valley, right? Um, but not at, at all. Sa- but at the same time, yeah. You know, you reach out, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're working on. And you find that, yeah, teams like the Angular team are willing to, you know, turn around and accommodate you to make the whole system better for everybody. Absolutely. And that's definitely one of the highlights of the Angular community for me is Mm -hmm. just how inclusive and accepting they are of new ideas. Yep, absolutely. I I find that refreshing also in the way they approach other frameworks. You know, they, they see a good idea somewhere and they're not afraid to, go talk to those teams, figure out what's going on and see how it can benefit us as well. Right. There's always sometimes this undercurrent of opinion in the community that somehow framework developers and builders of tools are competing with each other. And this was an opportunity for me to learn that couldn't be further from the truth. The reality of it is we're all facing problems building these Mm -hmm. kinds of applications and we all just want to find solutions to make them easy to write and high quality and testable. Yep. So is there anything else? I, I don't want to pigeonhole you into NGRX. Are there other things that you've worked on or done that you're pretty proud of that you want to talk about? 
Sure. So InterX was not actually the first time I started talking with the Angular team. My first contribution with them was um, because we were trying to build Angular apps so early in the development of Angular, I also helped spearhead a group called the NG Upgraders, mm-hmm. which was a community team of, con- of contributors from all over the world um, that worked in tandem with the Angular core team to come up with strategies for migrating teams and projects from AngularJS to Angular. So some of my first contributions were actually for two projects, um, NG Forward, which was mm-hmm. a, a way to write AngularJS code in the style of Angular, and then NG Upgrade, which is the de facto solution today, which is running AngularJS code and Angular code side by side. So that was my first big contribution, I think, to the Angular community was trying to find out, okay, how can companies and teams actually migrate from AngularJS to Angular. That's really cool. And I know a lot of teams have used those tools to upgrade their apps or are in the process of using them to upgrade their apps. And uh, yeah, it, it makes it pretty seamless. Uh, I mean, I've only done it on, on fairly small apps, but you know, just to, to keep, be able to continue to work on my old code while I bring new features in with, with Angular. Right, and that, that's the goal of Edge Upgrade is that you can you can incrementally begin to adopt Angular, and then sort of once that pendulum tilts the other way, then you can really snowball the rest of your migration. Yep. That's what I appreciate about it. I mean, we have a very large application here at Synapse that is still using ng-upgrade to this day, and we would not be able to get the same kind of quality out of it if we did not have a tool like that. Yeah, well, it also, I mean, you are doing a rewrite when you move components and directives and other things over to Angular, but it allows you to continue to make forward progress in whatever business you're working in while you do it. And and that's a pretty critical thing. I think a lot of companies have shied away from the idea of Angular uh, just because they don't want to do a big rewrite. And this this isn't a solution that will work for them, you know, so that they don't have to do it all at once. Oh, we're going to halt we're going to halt producing any new features for a year so we can upgrade. It just, it doesn't make sense. That's right. For us, and we're a startup. We don't have the, mm-hmm. the, either the money or the time to say, all right, let's stop development for a month and pay down this technical debt and perform a large migration. And I think there's a lot of developers that are in similar situations where they are time or money restricted in terms of tackling this upgrade. And NG Upgrade makes it affordable I guess would be a good way of saying it, where I can sort of spread this out over time and I can start to introduce better ways of building applications incrementally mm-hmm. into my app um, without having to pay for it all up all up by front. Yep. Yeah, you can tackle the technical debt that comes in to upgrading as you ta- the way you tackle all the rest of your technical debt, which is as I get to it, I can do it. That's right. And it's funny because these two projects that I'm interested in, which was ng-upgrade and ngrx, they actually really go hand in hand mm-hmm. because ngrx was a way for us to write state management in one framework, Angular, and then using ng-upgrade, we can share that state back into our legacy half of the application. And so ngrx was also part of this way to upgrade big software. Gotcha. So... Are you still a maintainer on both of those projects or have you moved on to something else? 
So I don't work on the NG upgrade story anymore. I think it's a pretty fleshed out story. And uh-huh. if you need to start upgrading, go for it. Um, but I'm still very actively involved in NGRX. Cool. So what are you working on now? So right now, well, first, I we are about to give mini talks at NGConf. So uh, <laughs> my, my co-contributor, Brandon Roberts, who I also work with at Synapse, him and I are giving four talks at NGConf all about NGRX. There's an entire NGRX track day that we're um, helping speakers put together slides for. So for the next two months, or however many months until NGConf, we are going to be focusing on that. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, we have some really big plans for how we're going to evolve NGRX to be more than just state management. What do you mean? What else is it going to do? So in Angular 6, there is a new renderer called mm-hmm. Ivy. Right. And if you're going to be building Angular apps, it's not going to mean much to you in Angular 6. But what it does is Ivy is going to expose a lot more of how Angular works to... Um, builders of tools like NGRX and really give us uh, the ability to do what I'd call meta programming on top of Angular, which mm-hmm. is something that hasn't existed in the framework up until this point, which is to say, we'll actually be able to tap into the way components are created and compiled. Uh, we'll be able to change the way you wire up dependency injection without actually having to contribute these ideas back to Angular core. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a really high level way of saying NGRX will be in a position to make reactive Angular uh, more appealing for developers. We, there's a lot of ways that developers have asked for more reactive primitives inside the framework itself, like how do I do forms in a more reactive way, right. or how do I write components in a more reactive way. And what Ivy's going to let NGRX do is we'll be able to write these kinds of libraries that enable developers to do just that. So we're really excited about what this means for NGRX and developers who are interested in reactive Angular. Makes sense. That's exciting. We'll have to have you back on the show to talk about it. Definitely. As soon as we finish wrapping our head around all of these crazy (laughs) ideas that it unlocks. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Well, before we do picks, do you have a blog or Twitter or anything else where people can come and see what you're thinking about or working on now? Yeah, there's two ways to follow what I'm doing with NGRX. So I'd either follow me on Twitter at MikeRyanDev or we sometimes post blog posts to the NGRX editor. So that's mm-hmm. medium.com slash at NGRX. And you'll find release announcements there along with content about, you know, how do you actually build applications and real deep dive style articles about NGRX. That's great. All right, folks, you heard it right here. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap this up then, and we'll get to some picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. 
and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yes, I've got three picks. So my first pick, I'm going to keep on the NGRX theme and go with NGRX Data, which is a library by John Papa and Ward Bell, who I know mm-hmm. um, come on the shows from time to time. And what they've done is they've tried to figure out a way to make the uh, development cycle with NGRX faster up front. Right. So one of the flaws with NGRX is if you're starting a new project with it, you have to write a ton of code to get started. And that makes it difficult to like prototype and mm-hmm. move quickly with the framework. NGRX data lets you skip all of that. It will wire up all of your entity management to your backend for you. And so you can focus on building your application without having to worry about the NGRX part of it. And then when you're ready to do more involved NGRX, you can start to break out of their library incrementally. So it's a really great way to start writing less code up front and move quickly. Nice. My second pick is for Cypress IO at Synapse. Because we do industrial IoT, quality is in everything we do. We have to write a lot of tests uh, at all levels from unit to integration to end to end. Mm-hmm. And Cypress IO is a really high quality browser automation testing tool. So we use it to write end to end tests. And I think what's so great about it is you write your tests with the browser live and you can see as you change tests how the browser responds to it. And it provides a really great development experience if you're trying to write end to end tests. And then my final pick is Sea of Thieves. It's a new game that came out just now. Uh, you can be a pirate with three of your closest friends. It's a great way to decompress, write some code in the day, <laughs> go out and be a pirate in the night, have fun with it. Really great game, and we're really, really enjoying it. What's it called again? Sea of Thieves. Sea of Thieves. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks that I'm going to throw out as well. One of them is is just being involved in uh, the political system. Um, I mentioned to Mike before the show, that uh, last night was uh, I had a little bit of a surprising experience. Um, I went out to the local Republican caucus. If you want to be involved in politics in Utah and have any kind of say, you have to register as a Republican and show up to caucus. Because uh, by the time the um, the candidates are nominated or go through a primary, um, they they're pretty much guaranteed to win here. Not everywhere and not all of them, but a lot of them. And so, if you want to have a say, you have to go to the caucus meeting and uh, send delegates to the convention who are going to vote for candidates that you're going to want to see show up. And so, you know, I go out and I vote and I was, so I went and I was thinking, you know what, I don't know if I really have time to be a delegate, but you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, vote for people who believe what I believe. And one of my neighbors nominated me to be the precinct chair. And um, I wasn't smart enough to say no. (laughs) And so uh, when the election, you know, when we elected the precinct chair, I wound up being elected. And now I'm really looking into, okay, how does the system work? And who are the candidates? And, you know, what's going on? And so whatever party, whatever level, whatever jurisdiction you live in, I just encourage people to go get involved. I mean, even if it is just to show up, you know, find out who else is there, find out what principles they're going to vote on, and then go vote on it. Um, or, you know, if you want to get more involved in your uh, political party or uh, system. But, you know, I hear a lot of people complain about it, at least in the United States, what's going on in Washington, D.C. And really um, showing up to vote 
um, is kind of the minimum that you need to do if you really care. Um, you need to go find out how these people are voting and what they're doing and whether or not what they're doing represents your views. And then, and then you have to help make that change because if you're not going to do it, if you're not willing to make that, uh, go do that work, then we're going to keep sending the same, same people back who are causing our problems. And so I just, I'm encouraging people to go out. I know it's probably a little bit late depending on, um, you know, when your area does your political caucusing or primaries or whatever. Um, it's not too late for everybody though. So, um, get involved, find out what's going on and then figure out if a change needs to be made and then make it. Um, and then, uh, the other pick that I have, um, I, I get together with a group of guys and play uh, board games, uh, once, at least once a month. And, um, I just bought a new game that I'm pretty excited. We're going to be playing it tonight, myself and a couple of guys. Um, we're playing Risk Legacy. Now, I kind of grew up playing Risk. Uh, Risk Legacy, I've also played Pandemic Legacy. Um, it's like the original game, except you, like each round you play, you make changes to the game. So, um, you know, you, you basically upgrade parts of the board. You put stickers on the board. You tear up cards. I mean, it's, it, it, if you're, if you're used to really taking care of your games, it might drive you a little bit crazy because it's like, throw the other card away. But, um, and, and you can only play through it one time. But it, it's been really, really fun. I've played Pandemic Legacy once and we're playing through it again um, with some other friends. And I'm really looking forward to Risk Legacy and seeing how that goes. So um, I'm going to pick that as well. All right, Mike, thanks for coming and uh, talking to us. Uh, really appreciate it. Really appreciate all the work that you put in um, just for helping people uh, do that state management and kind of keep track of all of the things that are moving in their app when it gets a little bit complicated. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and talking about it. All right, well, we'll see you at NGConf and we'll get you on the show after that. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right, talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.